The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, it has been about six weeks now, seven weeks, since uh, the new U.S. strategy for Africa, known as Prosper Africa, was unveiled in Maputo, Mozambique. Uh, and uh, it came with a lot of anticipation, a lot of expectation, and we haven't really heard too much about it now. But right now in Washington, the hot topic of the day, of course, is China. And everywhere you go in Washington, they're talking about China. And the coincidence of just the launch of Prosper Africa with this heightened awareness of China makes for a very, very interesting time to discuss U.S.-China-Africa relations. It's one of the topics, Kobus, that you and I said at the beginning of the year we were going to spend a lot of this year focusing on because it is transformational. There is so much going on right now. And uh, and it's just something that we need to kind of keep up because it is changing very, very quickly. Yes, very quickly. Um, it's also very complicated because it is increasingly mixed, a mix of, of business and geopolitics. Um, and, you know, a company like Huawei is, is a great example of how of how business and geopolitics are really kind of becoming very, very entangled in this triangle between the US, um, Africa and China. Um, and Africa is, is really uh, a really an important, you know, case study here, um, because Chinese companies have, have, have moved so rapidly into the African market and they've been so successful um, in expanding in Africa. So Africa really presents a challenge to the U.S. on lots of different levels, political and business levels, um, to, to see, you know, kind of not only to counter China, but also to engage Africa in creative ways. So just last week, there was a report in The New York Times that uh, unveiled a new or a revitalization of the Committee on the Present Danger. Now, this sounds like right out of a Stanley Kubrick movie from the 1950s in the Cold War. And ironically, it was actually a group that was formed in Washington to counter the Soviet threat. Uh, now they've revitalized a group of, uh, I would say, you know, more conservative uh, on the far right side of the, of the spectrum. Anytime Steve Bannon is somewhere there, that's probably a good definition of it. But again, gives you a tone with which where Washington's feeling is on China right now. And so we want to talk about China-Africa-U.S. relations, and there's no better person to do that than Aubrey Ruby. And in part because Aubrey came out with a new uh, report, uh, Deconstructing the Dragon, China's Commercial Expansion in Africa. She is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. This report that she came out with this month is really just a masterclass in how uh, China does business in Africa and how the United States should compete and her recommendations for it. A very good morning to you, Aubrey, from Washington, D.C. Thank you, Eric and Kobes. It's great to be on. So you wrote this report at a time when, uh, boy, everybody is, in fact, talking about Washington, uh, China, in fact, in Washington. Uh, I know for myself, because I was just there with you, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, and the amount of interest is off the charts. It is a decidedly negative view of China. There's no doubt on that. Uh, you even said right in the third sentence of your report, 
Uh, the administration's approach to Africa is inextricably linked to its perception of China as a strategic threat. Talk to us a little bit about the context with which you wrote this report today in Washington and why you put that emphasis so high up in the report. Yeah, so as I kind of framed it in the report, um, really Africa policy and, Af and thinking around Africa policy has been embedded in a, a larger worldview that the U.S. is in a strategic economic competition with China uh, globally, and Africa is a part of that. And that view is held both by Republicans and Democrats. It's a true bipartisan view in Washington that uh, the relationship with China needs to be recalibrated and that some of Chinese uh, business practices and successes in particular emerging markets somehow pose a competitive threat to uh, U.S. interests. So that's the overall framing that's taken hold and Africa policy is nestled within that framing. So in, on this show, we talk a lot about, about this issue of, of, you know, the Chinese um, preeminence in fields like infrastructure and, you know, how Western companies and particularly American companies frequently, you know, aren't as visible in Africa. And, and in the report, you actually, you, you point out how China brings a, a set of tools to the table that makes it easier for them to actually dominate this space in Africa. Can you unpack a little bit about, uh, a little bit why China is so preeminent in in these kind of these specific kind of projects in Africa? Yeah, I've really kind of broken it down into kind of two models we can think about. And, and one you can call the Chinese model and one more the Western or American model. Uh, the first is, is doing business in a government to government or G to G fashion where the, the infrastructure projects are actually financed based on a intergovernmental uh, agreement for a loan. And that has been kind of the backbone practice of, of Chinese uh, infrastructure investment. Um, it's really built on infrastructure financing that's agreed upon by between two governments. So for example, Kenya and China on the standard gauge railway will agree on a loan package. And then a Chinese infrastructure company, a construction firm, or what I call EPCs, engineering procurement construction firms, will actually execute on that contract. That G2G model has been the historic way that China has expanded into African markets commercially. On the U.S. side, the model is completely different. It's more government to business or G2B. So it's not based on this um, government to government bilateral loan agreement. In fact, we don't have a mechanism here to actually loan African governments anything outside of military, outside of the military realm um, to buy U.S. Um, products. It's always that those relationships are always construed with a um, government to business angle. So government either supports a company or a project on the ground in African markets. So if this is in fact the case, which I think it is based on what you've said, why is it that the United States government, and I'm not asking you necessarily to speak on behalf of the government, you don't work for the government, just to make that very clear, but you have some insights into how these people think. Why is it then that they are constantly saying that they want to present themselves as an alternative to the Chinese, when in fact they're doing something totally different? 
Yeah, I think that's an issue that we have to continue to kind of chip away at is whether these things are complementary or truly competitive. I argue that we don't, uh, we mean the U.S. and American companies don't do infrastructure well. Uh, we don't do it well in our own country. Uh, when we, you know, built the transcontinental railroad in this country, 100,000 Chinese worked on it in the 1880s. So um, infrastructure has not been an area of American strength for some time, um, but rather we are a service-based economy and there are areas that are complementary there. I think what's seen as competitive is particularly these two different models. I mean, one is based on kind of intransparent uh, sole source bidding to win commercial project, projects. And the other is way more focused on third party open kind of bidding processes if there were to be big, big uh, projects. So I think it's a, a contrast of the models um, more than competition around any one project. If I could uh, kind of contrast the two models as you've laid it out in your report, and I'll quote from your report. Western procurement procedures, which involve various layers of transparency, well-articulated timelines, third-party feasibility studies, environmental impact reviews, and labor condition requirements, stand in stark contrast to how most Chinese infrastructure projects are secured and constructed in African markets. Then you go on to say, the quick pace at which workers are on-site and shovels are in the ground is another major competitive advantage of Chinese companies. What we have heard over the years is that there is a huge demand for the Chinese way of doing business. Of all that report, all those paperwork, all that accountability, all that transparency is time-consuming, it's expensive, and it's cumbersome. And it oftentimes comes with political conditions as well attached to it. What indication do you have from all the travels and all the, the people you've spoken with in Africa that people actually want the American model and all of that bureaucracy that goes with it? Well, I think that it is a strategic advantage, this mobilization capacity, the ability for Chinese to move quickly on infrastructure projects. And I think when it comes to infrastructure, um, I do think that there's probably an advantage that Chinese companies have that American companies are just not going to be able to match or the processes are not going to be able to match. Um, you do hear concerns across the continent. You know, I've worked in 30 plus countries and spend 50% of my time that there's quality issues, you do hear that, um, and that you would prefer Western quality projects. But you know there are other competitors, Turkish companies, et cetera, that can deliver quality products when it comes to uh, infrastructure. Where I hear the demand for more of the kind of Western model, if you will, are in other sectors, such as like entertainment, um, venture and technology, uh, investments into you know particular software and uh, services. So I do think that there's demand for the kind of American um, expertise, but it's just in other sectors than, than infrastructure. You point out in the report that even though, you know, uh, you know America is, is, is relatively, is relatively small um, in the infrastructure field, American companies are, are massive in terms of foreign direct investment over, over a long time in Africa. Um, and you also mentioned that, that Chinese foreign direct investment is, is increasing quite rapidly um, in Africa. Uh, in the first place, like, what have been some of the, the, the U.S.'s successes in foreign direct investment in Africa? And, and where, where are the sectors where China is starting to, to move in? Well, 
you know, there have been several American companies that have been in African markets for over a century. Uh, you see General Electric uh, there and has a deep footprint. Um, you have Coca-Cola. Uh, you have the ag players like, agricultural players like Cargill, ADM. Um, they're invested on the continent. Uh, you see Caterpillar machines and John Deere machines. Um, so there, there are American companies with kind of deep uh, footprints and experience on the continent. You have uh, the consulting firms, the, the PWCs, uh, the Deloitte's, uh, McKinsey, you, Boston Consulting Group. You see the service sector there as well. Um, so I do think you have an American uh, investment footprint. It's just not been as dynamic in many ways because the same companies that were there 20 years ago are many of those that are there today. Uh, and you don't see a new batch of kind of smaller American firms stepping into the into the opportunity. Um, and in those uh, in that area, you do see the Chinese kind of evolving into other sectors. So for a long time, it was just the infrastructure players and the EPCs that were on the ground. For, uh, and now you see um, beyond Huawei and ZTE. You see Transnistian, the phone makers, all the, the, the cheap handset makers uh, have invested a lot in a traditional FDI fashion, meaning off their corporate balance sheets, they're investing in African markets. And they're doing so often without the support of the traditional kind of China XM bank uh, structure. I'm curious about the tone in Washington right now. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that this is an unusual time right now in our history in terms of how we perceive China. And then that, of course, in fact, it, you know, changes how we perceive Africa as well, because so much of it is being run through the prism of China. And it's just an interesting contrast between what's going on in China today in terms of their approach towards Africa and in the U.S. And in China, there's this sense of real optimism on the part of a lot of business leaders. And we saw this at the uh, trade expo that happened in Hunan in Changsha last month, uh, where thousands of Africans went, thousands of Chinese companies went, and there was this sense that we're, we, Africa is a market for Chinese companies and Chinese uh, products. And still in the United States, there is a perception that Africa is a basket case. It is the place where AIDS, Ebola, war, fighting, famine, you name it, comes from. There isn't this kind of optimistic outlook towards Africa. And I'm curious when you dropped this report in Washington uh, and when you started talking with various American stakeholders, what was their reaction to it? And what was the discussions and the topics that you engaged in when you held uh, various meetings to talk about the report? Well, I think as, as you framed it, there's a lot of interest. So the report got a lot of interest and, and um, pretty much all arms of the commercial uh, pieces of the U.S. government came uh, to the launch and, and, and are engaging on the topic. So there is a need or a desire within Washington uh, circles to um, better better shape uh, U.S. Africa policy to areas where, you know, we can have successes. I think on the commercial side, you're right. There's not necessarily a look at Africa um, from a lens of opportunity, but I think that that's true with almost all emerging markets right now in, in the U.S., the U.S. is growing at 3.2%, which is faster than, say, in Nigeria right now. And because of the growth of the large domestic market here in the U.S., plus kind of global uncertainty given trade war conversations, problems in the Straits of Hormuz, et cetera, I feel that most American companies 
are more focused at what they can do uh, in the U.S. market than they are in thinking about a markets abroad period. Um, even, you know, safe markets and, and markets you think that the U.S. companies were, were you know, really well established in, you know, are now facing Brexit in Europe and that uncertainty is adding more cause to kind of stay at home. So I, I think it's more of an isolationist moment in American history. Uh, and we've gone through many of those uh, cycles uh, over the last, you know, 200 years, and we're in an isolationist moment again. So I do think American companies are not so excited about African opportunities, but I think it's it's part of a larger trend, not just a view a negative view of Africa. Um, on that on that theme, um, how do you think that the U.S.-China trade war is going to affect Africa? Well, I think it's creating some opportunities for for African countries that are finding interesting strategies. China is now, you know, looking at at, um, importing more produce from African markets to offset uh, American produce. So that's fruits and vegetables. Um, I also think that companies that are sourcing apparel from African markets, clothing, um, are looking at it as, as kind of a nice diversification hedge against potential tariffs on uh, additional tariffs on Chinese made, and even in in Mexico, uh, threats around tariffs for for on Mexican products over our immigration issues, uh, also gives kind of a push, a potential push to sourcing in Africa. So I do think that there are some opportunities for African countries to benefit during this period. Now, if that's in fact the case, the fact that the tariffs combined with the current isolationist feeling in the United States. Is it possible then that the opportunity, the window of opportunity for the Americans may close once these Chinese companies like Transin, like Huawei, uh, you know, car companies down the road, they build up a formidable market share. It may be too too late for American companies to come in because the you only build a 5G network once, right? Or you only, you know, to be able to get that amount of market share that a company like Techno has. Um, so if people are sitting on the sidelines four, five, six years, if we come out of this isolationist uh, kind of period of our history and we want to re-engage, will it be too late? You know, I, I, I do think that there's this race aspect there um, and there is a, a, a moment for capturing market share. But I don't ever think it's quite too late because I think it's um, a simplistic framing. For example, all these large infrastructure projects. Um, that are happening on the continent, some of those Chinese EPCs are sourcing Caterpillar machines. And that becomes almost a market for Caterpillar, for example. Um, Also, I do think that uh, companies can be, you know, those first movers can be bought at a later date. So, um, for example, if uh, Alibaba came in and you know, bought uh, a local e-commerce play in in a particular country, Uh, perhaps Amazon could buy it from Alibaba in the future. So it's hard to say that it's so black or white, win-lose. But I do think that there is need to make a significant effort to help support the American private sector in seeing uh, African opportunities more clearly and then uh, moving to mitigate the risks that do exist. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. 
The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at VitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. Um, as Eric mentioned at the top, you know, there's there's a lot of um, a lot of kind of anti-China sentiment in in, in DC at the moment, um, and a, a lot of language about containing China and Africa. How is that a constraint on on American companies doing business in Africa, or is it is it actually spurring American businesses to Africa? Like how how does the politics and the business go together? Well, I do think that there's a difference between the conversation in Washington and then what's happening in Chicago and Houston and, and L.A. And one of the challenges that we have in, uh, in Washington is that uh, we need to reach a larger audience and there needs to be a mobilization effort that happens because I think that there are three challenges that American companies face when looking at African markets. One, a lack of data. Second, a lack of network. They don't know who to work with. And three, a lack of visibility into the opportunities. And because our country is so large, um, both geographically and as a market, it's important that we kind of go out and, and mobilize some of the demand and address these data network and visibility issues. And so hopefully Prosper Africa will have a, a portion of it dedicated to kind of what I call domestic mobilization of interest. Well, let's pick up the conversation on Prosper Africa, because I think it's a really important milestone for the United States in terms of the direction it wants to go in Africa. Now, Prosper Africa is this idea where it consolidates uh, U.S. government agencies with the idea that it's easier for uh, both American companies and African stakeholders to engage one another, to facilitate investment uh, it does have a very optimistic view, but the birth of it did not come out quite so optimistic. And this was where uh, Ambassador John Bolton, National Security Advisor, uh, announced it on uh, at the Heritage Foundation last year, and he mentioned China 14 times. And since then, a lot of people have come to interpret Prosper Africa as really a way less that it's about Africa and more that it's about China. In fact, just last week, Kimberly Ann Elliott who's at the George Washington University. Uh, she's in a, a faculty there. And she wrote an article in World Politics Review saying, Trump's prosper Africa strategy is fixated on a Cold War-like view of China. And one of the reasons why I think that prosper Africa didn't resonate in Africa so much is because it did feel a lot about China. Now, in the unveiling of it in Maputo, uh, back in June, uh, they didn't mention China. So that was nice that the administration kind of moved on from talking about China, not framing it against China, but actually that it's for Africa. But it still brings up this idea of tone. And I want to play you some sound from uh, Assistant, Secretary, Assistant Secretary of State Tibor Neige in an interview he did with the BBC. And I want to pick up on a couple different things here on the tone that the Americans have, both about the Chinese and about Africa. And again, this is an interview he did with the BBC. Let's take a listen. Well, what I want to do on the continent is give the, give the Africans themselves another alternative. You know, for too long, uh, when investors have knocked on the door and the Africans opened the door, the only person standing there was the Chinese. My job is to make sure that next time there's a knock on the door, there's an American standing there as well, investor, because we get back to the same fundamental issue in Africa. That's employment for young people. But we're looking at a situation where China right now is meeting the continent's needs very quickly. 
infrastructure. And now soon the continent will have the 5G network, which is very key for the, the employment issue you're talking about. Well, I'm not sure about the 5G. I don't know how many people that's going to employ. And as far as meeting the infrastructure needs, just when I was in Addis Ababa a couple of weeks ago, it turned out that the ring road, which was uh, constructed by China a few years ago, part of it just collapsed. So, you know, again, I want to get back to the point of giving the advantage to the Africans to be able to have more choices than one company or one country providing the, you know, the contracts and the labor. You know, in the same interview, uh, Assistant Secretary Neige, he also talked about how the, that the United States would not come in to bail out uh, African countries that were in debt distress. And so the, the reaction to this interview online was the United States is not necessarily conveying a very positive message, you know, downplaying and criticizing the Chinese on 5G, on their infrastructure, not coming in with bailouts. And again, it just doesn't feel like there's a lot of optimism coming out of Washington the same way that there is optimism coming out of, as you pointed out, not just China, but Turkey, Japan, India, lots of other places. Talk to us about what you think of, of Assistant Secretary Neja's comments and this question of the optimistic message. Well, I think that, listen, there, there's no doubt that Prosper Africa was uh, created in this environment of which Africa policy is designed as kind of in reaction to. It's not a, it's a, not a defined vision of the U.S. and African markets for the next, you know, 20 years that is uh, separate from China policy. Really, these things are kind of combined, and, and you hear that in, in, in Tibor's framing. Um, and so I do think that it's, you know, you can't really look at Prosper Africa, even if they didn't mention China in, in Maputo, as, as separate, right? And I think that that's uh, part of the challenges uh, that the reception of Prosper Africa has had in African markets, because it just doesn't seem big enough. It doesn't match the ambition uh, that people have for what the U.S. should be doing. But I think it needs to be seen in, in, in a broader framework, this question of, you know, the U.S. seems to be organizing the toolbox, so the commercial tools that we have for supporting American companies, while also sharpening those tools. And so I do think that there are big things that have come out, which is, you know, the new, the Build Act and this new OPIC, um, the Overseas Private Investment Corp, which is the U.S.'s DFI, has been greatly expanded and enhanced. And that is a sharpening of a tool that we have. And that's broader than just Africa, but it's very significant in terms of size, magnitude, and impact. So I think Prosper Africa is one piece of it. It's certainly about organizing the toolbox, but I don't think it has to be the end all of it. Um, how does Prosper Africa compare with something like the, the German Compact with Africa that was launched under the G20 presidency, where they do a lot of work on 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 instituting domestic reform, um, working with African governments to improve, st uh, you know, various um, uh, various kind of instruments, economic instruments um, in their economies, uh, including things like you know improving the tax um, the, or the re you know kind of revenue services, making making corporate revenue um, uh, collection more efficient, uh, you know, strengthening IP law and so on, and and. Then at the same time, kind of matchmaking with with companies in Europe. Um, how how is how is Prosper Africa's um, approach similar or different from that? Uh, it's very different uh, because 
first of all, the Compact for Africa process is, is one that's fairly multilateral, right? And it's working through World Bank structures, et cetera. I think it's because of that, it's very hard to understand. I spent days in Germany at the launch and try after four days, still didn't understand what these things were. <laughs> um, and it, it really is um, something that's about the, the capacities and the agreements that are happen at a, at a government to World Bank, government to multilateral level. Um, Prosper Africa, it does have a part of it that's going to be aimed at regulatory uh, business environment reform. Um, but I think the majority of it, um, the thrust of it, is about trying to, to get more American companies to invest and, and trying to support these deals. So let's take a look at the recommendations that you have. Uh, you provided five recommendations in your report for what uh, American companies or the U.S. should do. Um, I don't know if you have them off the top of your head. If not, I have them here. But one of the, the first ones that caught my attention was you suggested that the United States should focus on the narrow areas of infrastructure that fall within the U.S. competitive advantage. And when it, this is a hard thing for Americans to, to stomach because we're used to being all things to all people. And we've never really confronted a competitor quite like the Chinese who come with the deep pockets and in some ways the expertise, as you pointed out in your report, to do things that we simply can't do. And I'm just curious about that recommendation on this idea of focusing on the areas of competitive advantage. Yeah, I think you're completely right, Eric. It's, it's a hard thing to swallow here because even during the Cold War, um, the idea was that we were kind of matching Soviet technology like head to head, right? So whether it was missile technology or whether it was industrial capacity, it was all about direct competition. And, um, and in this case, the argument that we should just let certain sectors go is hard for a lot of people to swallow. Um, and so that's been a, an interesting conversation and one that several of us in Washington continue to um, hit home. Uh, and so I do think it's talking about infrastructure in different ways and looking at maybe smart cities, looking at renewable energy, looking at data um, and data infrastructure, those type of areas that we might be better at than, for example, transport, roads, rail and port. You also talk about uh, continue pushing for a level playing field when it comes to anti-corruption compliance. Uh, you mentioned new tools like DFC and Prosper Africa. And then you prior said we should prioritize the creative and education sectors. Can you talk a little bit about education in part because I know you're very passionate about that because you think it is one of the areas where the United States really excels? Yeah, I mean, I think that globally, um, tertiary education in the United States is seen as a gold standard. And there's a huge ambition uh, to be met among African youth uh, to have a better, better opportunities through education. And there's also a lot of education, innovation, and technology coming out of the U.S. So whether that's the large um, online courses, whether that's, um, you know, companies that are specializing in, in combining gaming and education, uh, there's a lot of innovation that's happening in the education space that I think could meet the um, demand by African youth. And historically, I mean, next year will mark 60 years since the uh, the Kennedy um, you know student airlift that brought many Africans to study in the U.S. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, and that gave us you know President Obama, 
that gave us uh, a whole network of, of African elite that studied in the US. And that's invaluable when it comes to making business ties and having that network. So I believe that we can, that time is right for a new uh, education initiative uh, that kind of builds those people to people ties, but undergirds deeper business relationships in the future. Well, let's end on a positive note. I love that spirit at the end. The article is deconstruct. Oh, the report is deconstructing the dragon, China's commercial expansion in Africa. I, I really, when I was reading it, I sent a note to Cobus while I was reading this thing. This should be required reading for basically everybody in government, everybody in every student who's studying Chinese affairs around the world and, and wants to understand China-Africa relations. It is, again, as I said, a masterclass in how it's done. I am amazed at how you got insights into the procurement process and how things are done. Uh, it is not that long and it's not wonky like a lot of the academic stuff that comes out of uh, out of think tanks. It's really accessible and well-written. And uh, congratulations on the report. It's it's just, uh, again, I, it's invaluable for people like me. And I'm just so thrilled that we were able to have you on the show again to walk us through it. If people want to follow what you're doing and you do a lot and you are often between the United States and Africa, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you? Sure. So Twitter is uh, a great way. I'm at Aubrey Ruby. Um, and then the a report is available online and free and downloadable to anyone who wants it. So it's on the Atlantic Council website uh, and can be accessed from anywhere. And we'll have it, of course, in the show notes and on our website, and it's on our social media channels as well. Aubrey, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Kobus, I... You know, I'm struggling with how I feel about U.S. policy towards Africa as it relates to uh, the Chinese and, and Prosper Africa and all the things that, that Aubrey said. Because on the one hand, I share her optimism. There is so much that the United States can bring to the table. Uh, and there are so many different things that we as Americans are not taking advantage of that are direct competitive advantages over China. First, we have a diaspora population that's huge here. That is the immigrant population from Africa, which we're not fully engaging. We have, obviously, the deep historical links. Some of them are, most of them are quite painful, but we have this connection with Africa historically that is something that's very, very powerful and very, very important. We're not taking full advantage of that. We have the ability to bring private sector engagement in ways that the Chinese at this point cannot do, and the transparency and the good governance issues, and these are all amazing messages but I feel at the same time that this amazing message and this optimism that is innate in Americans, uh, you know, and this is in this day and age, it's hard to believe that we are optimistic people. But at the end of the day, I think Americans, and it's what I'm most proud of being an American, is that we always believe that tomorrow will be better than today. Well, we used to believe that. I'm not so sure anymore that we still believe that. But for a lot of us, that is the way that we grew up. And it's that optimism that the rest of the world looks to the United States for because they don't always have that. I live in Asia, I've lived in Africa, I live all over the world. That optimism is not innate in many cultures as it is in the United States. But at the same time, when we have a U.S. policy that is framed around containing China or challenging China or providing an alternative to China, the tone comes off wrong. And the tone comes off bitter, negative, small-minded, and it just doesn't feel relevant to the daily lives of many Africans. 
And that's one of the reasons why I think the United States kind of the stock, if you will, the price of the stock is falling in many African countries, in part because people just don't see the connection in their daily lives the same way that they see what the Chinese are doing. Now, again, I don't actually think the Chinese are, are, are that popular in Africa. People are saying, you know, I don't really necessarily know these people. I don't like them very much all the time. They speak a funny language, all these different things. But I like the road. I like the hospital. I like the port. I like the money. I like all of these different things that are coming in. I see the techno phone in my hand. I understand the Huawei 4G network that I'm talking on was built by them. And so there is that direct connection to daily life that people can say, you know, if not the Chinese, then who? And the United States simply will not be the alternative the way that Tibor Neige is presenting. I don't, I mean, it's just, as Aubrey said, we don't have the competitive advantage anymore to do that. So, so I guess that's where I'm conflicted about both being an American and thinking about American policies. Um, yeah, I can completely see that. From, you know, seen from the outside, I think um, it seems to me that that Aubrey's report is very smart in the, in in the sense that she that she really recognizes what China does very well, um, and then she recognizes that you know that, that China, for being a very a formidable player in, in a lot of the, a lot of these fields, actually it, it it tends to China can be quite conservative, you know, in terms of in terms of the fields that it that it enters. So it doesn't try to do everything, you know, kind of it, it, it concentrates on, on on certain things and totally dominates those fields, um, and. So in, in, in a lot of a lot of the, the spaces where the US is strong, China isn't particularly playing in those spaces, you know. So, for example, you know, I, I think she was very smart to point out the, the role of the growing role of media um, in, in Africa. Um, so, you know, my my life partner works in, in TV um, and in the, the, the South African TV scene, the arrival of Netflix is, was the story of this year. Um, you know, Netflix is coming. Netflix is working with African creatives. They're doing all of these interesting, interesting projects. Um, at the same time, you're seeing, uh, you know, African artists showing up in the new Lion King soundtrack. You, you, you see African artists playing music like you know, fancy music festivals in in Europe. Um, it's it's there's a, there's some acknowledgement of of the creativity in the African cultural sector in 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 the US and and in in Europe that you don't see in China, right? Kind of the, the China China just isn't isn't playing on that field. The Chinese are not savvy in engaging with Africans in this kind of way. Um, the Americans are, but the thing is, it's one specific subset of America. It's one, you know, it's, it's, it's the, it's coastal America, it's, it's multicultural America, it's young America. And that America is in conflict with a different America. You know, the, the very somber, very negative, very, uh, you know, scared of the outside world America. And to a certain extent, I think the, the, the success of the U.S. in Africa is going to, to a large extent, be determined by what happens to the U.S. domestically. Um, you know, which, which, which culture, you know, predominates in, in the long run. Um, because there's some, some sections of American culture is very, very open to Africa, and Africans consume it avidly, and they're very, very sympathetic to it. Others are not so open to Africans, and Africans don't find any interest in it. You know, um, so, so, so controversies within the U.S., like, for example, the send her back, 
chanting uh, against uh, Somali-born congresswomen um, in the U.S. recently. Um, it, it, none of that goes unnoticed in Africa. It, it, all, all of it gets noticed in Africa, and and it, and so there's this current, this constant kind of reevaluation of what it, what African-U.S. ties mean. Um, and but those, the, you know, the, that fight frequently gets played out domestically in the U.S. before, even before it, it's, it comes to Africa itself. Yeah, and you've also mentioned in previous shows too that uh, Africans follow the treatment of Black Americans and African Americans. Uh, very closely, and uh, in the difficulties that many have had at the hands of law enforcement, whatnot, do go to the broader reputational issues. And I think it's something very interesting to separate out uh, when we talk about soft power and American soft power. Oftentimes, it's conflated between American cultural soft power, say Beyonce, Lion King, and Netflix, and American policy. And those two are not the same. And people can actually compartmentalize that they like Beyonce, but they don't like American policy. And in Washington, oftentimes there is a mixing of those two, but I think it's important to segregate the two there as well. Uh, one other important point, and I didn't have a chance to ask her about it, but we were running short on time. She's very busy and we had to let her go, but was about the role of corruption. And what was so interesting in her report, and she talked about, she walked us through the government-to-government procurement process. And as I was reading it, I was just making notes in the side of saying, this is an opportunity for corruption, this is an opportunity for corruption, this is an opportunity for corruption, and so on. Because the Chinese emphasize this opacity in their dealings with African governments, and because there is no third-party review, there is no auditing, there is no KPMG that comes in and looks at the books, if you will, um, the opportunities are rife for corruption. We know that corruption is happening. And again, this is where the United States can do a better job in presenting how it does procurement. Now, again, it's not going to do the same kind of procurement simply because they don't do G2G type of business, as she said. But the point is that corruption is really one of the areas that Africans are fed up with, are frustrated with. Ironically, the average Chinese person is also fed up with corruption. And I just think that corruption is one of those areas that America can build and really have a strong message that would resonate with the the average guy on the street because people they're just they they look at the chinese and they do think of bribes and corruption and lack of transparency and all these things and i don't see the chinese changing that anytime soon despite the rhetoric coming out of beijing saying that they want to be more open they want to be more transparent but it's just not in their dna to do that quickly yeah, um, you know, it's it's interesting to see that that rhetoric start, starting to come out of China, and also even deals being cancelled because they, you know, they might have been inflated, um, and at the same time. You know, I agree with you that the U.S. is is has this very high levels of of transparency and and due diligence but at the same time you know appearances of corruption at highest levels in the u.s is, are at an all-time high at the moment you know um you we know the family run yes, uh, the, you know government and, and right you know now. that that's the joke that trevor noah has been making for for many years now is that you know is that trump the trump family increasingly plays out like an african elite family you know um so in that sense you know again that the u.s is the u.s is 
the US's strength and its weakness is how incredibly transparent it is you know um, the um, you know so so like all, all of all of the faults are, are clearly visible but the transparency itself is invaluable because the thing that makes Africans so nervous about China is that it's so opaque and it's such a it seems like such a monolith from the outside um, you know and then who knows what's going on behind you know kind of within the the Communist Party um, whereas in, you know so so the, so the you know the the attacks that one that one sees within the Trump administration against things like the EPA, against these these reporting mechanisms and and checks and balances, those I think should be very worrying for Americans, not only in relation to their own economy but in relation to their position in the world, because that is a major strength that the U.S. brings to the table. If that gets frittered away, then it you know it's just the same as as another rich country, you know another rich kind of opaque country, um, and that that I think is 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 worrying. Okay, so listen, we need to wrap it up there because you and I could go on for this for hours and hours and hours, but I just cannot emphasize enough what an important report this is. Uh, go and read it. Yeah, this is going to be quoted for, this is, for years. But this is, I mean, and again, this is the bench, the benchmark for me for anything on U.S.-China-Africa or U.S.-Africa policy. Uh, Aubrey, she, for those of you who are not familiar with her, she's one of these people who's just I mean, I don't know when she sleeps. I don't know when she does anything outside of work, but she is everywhere all the time. It's remarkable. And that she was able to get the insights. I mean, this is better than a lot of the academic stuff that I've seen. That, that uh, I mean, the research that went into producing this report was phenomenal. And, and I'm just, I'm, I just, I'm gushing because, uh, you know, I don't come across this quality stuff very often. And I... Yeah, so I just thought it was great, and I really cannot recommend it enough for everybody to take a look. Let us know what you think. Take a, you know, did you hear a slight negative tone in my approach? I'm trying to just push the questions a little bit. I don't have an anti-American view. Let me just put that out there. I do get criticized for that a little bit. My point is here is to fuss to have a kind of more dynamic conversation by kind of asking those more difficult questions that Americans oftentimes don't ask of themselves. And because I'm American, I think that I'm in a good position to do that. But I would love to hear what do you think of what Aubrey said, what I said, what Cobus said. Uh, you can email me directly, eric at chinaafricaproject.com. You can get Cobus at Cobus, C-O-B-U-S, at chinaafricaproject.com. And of course, you can follow us on all our social media channels. We have a new newsletter that comes out now on Fridays, not on Mondays. Uh, we think it's a great thing. We love, we spend the week putting it together and you get a wrap of all the week's China-Africa news. Kobus is writing this nice little blurb intro that kind of summarizes everything. And uh, it's just a great way to start your weekend if you are interested in catching up on China-Africa news. Go to our website at chinaafricaproject.com and you can sign up right there. So we'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Quobus at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.